Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. On this episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, Dick Beauvais will explain why he believes the U.S. Fed will raise interest rates two more times before year-end, even as inflation appears to be cooling. The Paris Air Show provides a striking contrast with the financial services sector of our economy, which is showing signs of stress amidst layoffs and declines. We'll look at that. Fed's losses are mounting, and we'll have the latest numbers from Dick. We'll also have the latest on the US banking crisis and what we might expect during earnings season. We'll look at the rise in total household business and credit card debt in America in this era of rising interest rates. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the US dollar is facing headwinds as the global reserve currency. We'll discuss the outlook for the US dollar. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group and Matt Van Alstyne, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And we'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome to episode 74. Now, you will recall, of course, that last week uh, we talked about the inflation numbers coming in at 4%. That was the CPI down from 4.9% year over year for April. And we then looked at where does that leave interest rates we didn't know how the fed was going to going to move on that um it did pause but it did note that we may have two uh, rate hikes later this year that's a distinct possibility and you you spoke dick and matt about maybe we have conquered inflation the fed has its work done uh, but dick you've been looking at the numbers more closely you have a note out saying that if you exclude energy prices Inflation actually is uh, something above 6%, and that's maybe indeed the Fed has not finally um, slayed the inflation beast. Yeah, no, I, I uh, took another look uh, because, uh, you know, the argument in the market right now uh, is very strong uh, between the bulls who argue that, uh, okay, the Fed did everything it had to do, inflation is over, the economy is ready to roll, and uh, the Fed will not do anything further uh, because there's no necessity for it. So I looked at uh, two sets of numbers to try and determine whether, in fact, that argument was correct or not. And unfortunately, I'm coming down on the other side. I believe that the Fed will do what uh, Mr. Powell indicated, our Chairman Powell pretty much indicated in his uh, comments. uh, They will raise two more times uh, before the end of the year. And the logic is two parts. The first one is taking a look at the money supply. 
I always criticize the Fed's money supply numbers because it the Fed only looks at a small segment of the money supply. It looks at what we'll call transaction money. It, it considers money which can be taken out immediately and spent immediately as the true money supply, which means that it doesn't look at what I'll call investment money, which is the money uh, which would be a $100,000 CD uh, is not counted as money by the Fed. Uh, any any money put into a, a money market fund is not money. Uh, and if you use prior definitions that the Fed created for something called M3, you would look at the federal funds rate, the overnight uh, you know deposit rates, etc. And amazingly, despite the fact that M2 is declining, M3 in the last couple of quarters is rising. So we're now using a new, or at least I've set up a new Odeon, uh, if you will, M3 revised M3 number, uh, an Odeon revised M3 number. And that, you know, to give me a feel for where money supply is going, and it's going up right now. Uh, and that means that the Fed has not succeeded in, in that particular area. The second thing I'm looking at is, you know, where is the CPI? And, you know, I took a look at rents. Rents are coming down very rapidly now in the CPI. Uh, and the homeowner equivalent rent is equal to where it's been, you know, let's say historically. It's not high or low. It's it's pretty much in sync with the CPI. So what's moving the CPI in its energy prices? And, you know, back when inflation, uh, the CPI was at 9%, uh, energy prices in some cases were up 40%. And now that the uh, CPI is down at 4%, energy prices are actually declining. They're declining by about 8 or 9%. So if you take that very volatile number out of the uh, CPI and you say, what is the CPI excluding energy? It's 6.5%. And 6.5% is nowhere near the 2% that the Fed has been shooting for. So if we take these two, look at these two critical issues, is money supply, you know, under control? No, it isn't. It's growing. The Fed didn't think it was growing. Is uh, inflation, you know, coming down rapidly? Well, if you take a look at, uh, you know, uh, the, um, uh, if you will, the, the CPI without the energy number, no, it isn't coming down. It's at six and a half percent. So, you know, basically, I think that what Powell says is what Powell means, and that we will have two more increases in the Fed fund rate before the end of the year. Uh, and that means that uh, maybe uh, the market's a little bit too bullish here. Powell did note that um, price pressures remain elevated in core services. Um, so you've modified and adjusted your thinking from last week. We could be looking at two more rate increases. That would take us up to a high of nearly 6% on interest That's rates. Correct. Yeah, that's wow, correct. who would have thought that a year ago? Yeah, well, who would have thought that you know, inflation <laughs> would be where it is, uh, you know, a year ago? But I mean, again, you know, it, I always have to put, uh, you know, the proviso that government numbers are always uh, open to change. Government numbers are very difficult to to gather and relate in a very correct fashion. And what the government is trying to do is very, very hard to do here. And the government works very hard at doing it. But if you take the government numbers at face value, if you really believe that this Fed is data dependent, which again, it says it is, well, the data is not showing that inflation has been licked. 
data is showing that inflation is sticky and that if the Fed really wants to lick it, it is going to have to go up and do another couple of increases in rates, which the market's not going to like, which nobody's going to like. I mean, the Fed is in a tough place here. <laughs> like, like the the data keeps coming in strong, and they, I, I would bet if you went back to you know the Jackson Hole meetings a year ago or even two years ago, they would have thought that ra- raising rates to four five percent would be excessive and would have gotten the job done and would have broken something. Because it seems to me that they're waiting for something to break before they they quit raising rates, and nothing is breaking. And you know, we go over these GDP numbers, you go over the, the inflation numbers, and then the unemployment numbers, and everything is kind of conflicting and, and pointing in different directions of where the economy is. And so I, I agree that I wouldn't want to be Jerome Powell right now because, you know, the banks and the life insurance companies and, you know, private equity companies and a lot of private companies that have debt or public companies that have debt need lower interest rates to survive. Like, it's almost not debatable that the the federal government needs lower interest rates because otherwise the debt the the interest on the debt will eat up so much of the of the government budget that we're going to be printing money solely to pay interest on the debt and it becomes a debt spiral on the other hand he has to fight high inflation and it sounds like you know based on what you just said it sounds like it's stickier than than they want it to be and so they're between a rock and a hard place and it's a very very tough situation and um you know, they're going to be putting more pressure on the banks, but it seems like I agree with you. They're going to keep raising until something breaks. And, you know, good luck to predict which one, what's going to, what's going to break first. You know, we thought it was going to be the regional banks, and now we have some sort of implicit yell input that, you know, banks are all insured, even though they're not. And maybe something else will break, but it doesn't seem to be um, wages. It doesn't seem to be jobs. And this new housing starts number that just came out shows that it doesn't seem to be housing. Like, where, where what's going to break? It seems like nothing is is working right now. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, if, if I were to try to argue with what I just said a minute ago, um, you know, we, we've always said on these broadcasts that defense is where you have to put your money because defense is uh, is going to be going up for an extended period. And we've got this Paris Air Show, which is on right now. So uh, on uh, the uh, different news broadcast networks, you know, they're interviewing people like the guy who runs uh, GE, the head of Raytheon, the head of Boeing, and uh, these interviews are unbelievable. In other words, Boeing is arguing that uh, there have been so many planes that have been ordered that if someone comes in with a new order for a plane, uh, they can't start working on it until the 2030s. Uh, the the people from Raytheon is saying that uh, we've used up so much ammunition and missiles and HIMARS, etc., in this uh, war in the Ukraine that it will take at least a decade. I don't know if he's, if he's exaggerating, but he said it will take a decade before we can get our inventory of ammunition back to where it's supposed to be. The head of uh, GE is saying that, uh, you know, they're running pretty much, and, and they make engines for airplanes, right? That's that's their, their biggest product, uh, airplane engines. Uh, they don't make refrigerators anymore. But the point is that uh, that company uh, is saying that, uh, you know, they're, they're running pretty close to full capacity. So, you know, on the defense side, 
you're not going to see anything breaking. Uh, the demand for product is going to be enormous. The demand for workers, new factories, manufacturing, etc. Uh, and uh, one of these guys, uh, I think it was the guy who was the head of Raytheon, said, you know, you can't get away from uh, working with China uh, to, to do everything in the United States because China simply has too many of the materials that we need in order to produce our products. So uh, that part of the economy, I assume, is, is going to continue to be very strong for for the foreseeable future uh it is the financial side of the economy which is troubled uh and and if you take a deep look into bank through banking to the economy forget banking if you look through banking to the economy just about every major loan category is down in in the last week and if you look at it on a 13 week uh, you know quarter over quarter basis because everybody wants to know how each company is doing in the quarters you know it's all down it's all down. Loans are down across the board. You know, deposits are down, you know. So uh, the financial side of the economy is stressed. The defense side of the economy couldn't be stronger. They're interesting numbers. The lending is, is slowing, Dick. But if you look in the aggregate, and I guess to, to Matt's point, when will something break? Not that we want it to break badly, but something has to give you assume just based on these rising interest rates. Um, the Federal Reserve of New York uh, recently had a report saying that total household debt rose $148 billion to $17.5 trillion in the first quarter. Uh, Americans owe $1 trillion or so in credit card debt on rising interest rates. Then there was another report saying that by the end of last year, debt held by U.S. businesses hit a record $20 trillion. All of this on rising interest rates. So I, I'm kind of confused and, and, and shocked, I guess, on some levels. Can, can this continue without something not just going really badly wrong? Well, lately I've been reading uh, this guy Ray Dalio a lot uh, because... Uh, he agrees, I guess, with with a lot of theories th that I'm positing. Of course, his his word is far more important, uh, and his his argument is no, it can't. You know, I mean, his he's he's very clear. Uh, he's written all these books, the principles of this, the principles of that, the principle of the other thing. But uh, in his in the book that came out in 2021, which uh, I, I think. I, I just think the guy is a genius. I think he's unbelievably good. He's basically saying that, you know, the big problem that, uh, you know, investors face is that when there's a, a major shock in turn in the economy, that it has uh, significant impacts well beyond um, what we what we expect to see. And he's taken um, a whole bunch of countries. The, the three countries that he's focused on most are obviously the United States, during its period of, of primacy, uh, you know, Britain during its period of primacy, and, um, you know, the Netherlands, amazingly, in their period of primacy. And he's also gone back uh, in, in China to 600 uh, 600 AD, uh, and, and looked at China and, you know, also other, what he calls minor, Russia, the Ottoman Empire, etc. In every case, it comes down to too much debt, too much inflation, it destroys economies, and you have to reset the economy. And it is not a, 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 a modest reset; it's a major reset. Now, I hope he's wrong about that, but but I do think the numbers that you're relating, John, are very important. You know, we are overwhelmed with debt. 
and the interest on that debt is overwhelming. And, and you know, at some point we'll talk about the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve, but no one feels it more keenly than the Federal Reserve itself on its own balance sheet, which is so deeply in, in, in debt and so deeply uh, negative in terms of earnings that I don't understand how it can be a, a, a central bank. And just picking up real quickly, um... Wallet Hub had a new report out and said um, the spending on credit cards by American consumers is now really nonstop. We once thought of putting things on our credit card as frivolous spending of a big purchase of TV. Now, because of inflation, people are putting actual necessities, food, housing on their credit cards. So consumers eventually, you assume, will be tapped out on this, although it doesn't seem to be stopping right now. Well, you know, the credit card is no longer, and I think you said it exactly correctly, it's no longer uh, the item used for frivolous pur frivolous purposes because the credit card industry has worked very, very hard to make sure, for example, if you're a small business, that instead of going to the bank to borrow money, you use your credit card. You borrow money from the bank. You know, It's the same lender and the same user of the funds, but the mechanism is the credit card. All right. The same is true in terms of making large purchases. Uh, you know, back in the old days, you would go to the bank uh, and uh, again, you know, you would sit down with the loan officer and said, I'm going to buy a house or I'm going to buy, you know, uh, you know, uh, a home improvement or what have you. But, uh, you know, the house you may not put on the credit card, but you're going to put everything else on the credit card. People don't realize that credit cards are a mechanism for borrowing. Uh, which uh, allow it's the AI which allows you to avoid going to the bank to borrow the money, but but credit card debt is the strongest growing portion of the debt sector. Except it looks like margin debt is now coming up very fast again because the markets uh, the markets have been very strong uh, for for the last uh, couple of months. Well, actually, all year. I'm just looking at it. I think the average interest rate on a credit card. Um, is around something like 20 percent it's just mind-boggling you know that's true that's not correct i don't know where those numbers come from because if you take a look at the uh, yield on credit card loans for banks it's it's roughly half that uh it's it's more in the 10 12 percent area than the, than the than the 20 to 28 percent area if you miss a few payments on your credit card you will pay 28 percent. no no question about it uh but you know people try not to miss their payments but again, the credit card industry is very smart. I mean, uh, companies like Capital One. Capital One, um, again, they're really smart people in, in all parts of American industry. Capital One has figured out that the best person to lend money to is the person who always pays back that money but never pays it back on time. Because if that person <laughs> never pays it back on time, you can charge them 28%. And you can charge them late fees. And all of a sudden, uh, as opposed to the, the the wealthy individual, you know, the millionaire who's never going to run a credit card uh, debt situation, going to pay off his pay off his credit card every month uh, as it comes due. You know, that person who's struggling at the edge, he is or she is the most important person for a credit card company because that's where the biggest profits come from. There's no, there's no, no nothing comes close to it. You may well be right. I, I trust your numbers, Dick, but that double-digit average interest rate came from a report uh, published by The Hill. They put it at 20.92, 
and last spring they said the average uh, card rate was 16.65 but either way it's high if you sort of carry over your balances well yeah it is high it is high but i don't know of any bank that is producing an income statement that shows credit card yields anywhere near those numbers We've looked at the uh, bank crisis over the past several months. You've looked at individual banks and you've uh, published different data. Where are we at right now? Um, is it still in a, a different? Are these difficult times for for banks? Because you mentioned about two bank conferences back to back in the past week. The bankers were saying that it could be, it will be a tough quarter or so ahead for us. Yeah, they're really crying the blues. I mean, there's no question about the fact that uh, uh, whatever, you know, investors in the market think, whatever investors in bank think, uh, you know, the banks themselves don't think the same things. Um, You know, we could start, you know, and again, I'm not making any recommendation one way or the other on these things. We we as a firm do not have any position in these stocks. uh, And and therefore, this is simply a pure research uh, argument. We, We we are not making any statements based upon any uh, monetary uh, or fiduciary relationship that we have with any of these companies. All right, but having said that, Citigroup uh, is really, uh, you know, c- causing a lot of difficulty. And uh, in, in, uh, has been caused a lot of difficulty by the current environment. They're talking about trading, you know, uh, being down twenty percent year over year. That's that is a big, big number. Uh, they have been firing people at an increasing rate. I mean, they started with, you know, modest firings. And then all of a sudden, the number jumped to 5,000 people getting fired. Now, you know, the latest number is another 1,600. I don't know if that's part of the 5,000 or 1,600 on top of the 5,000. Uh, and there are notes about they're firing people in pretty high positions. They they made the, uh, the decision as a company to basically... Um, move toward uh, away from retail banking uh in in you know countries around the world toward you know investment banking and and that unfortunately the timing was exactly wrong uh and and they've moved into the sector of the uh financial system which is doing the worst and it's having an impact if you look at, at a bank like truest financial now truest financial is the sixth largest bank in the united states citigroup is the third largest bank uh, truest was uh, created by the merger of sun trust and bbnt and what truest is saying is that uh, they've got problems in three areas and, and therefore their second quarter numbers are going to be stressed the first problem is deposits are leaving the bank uh, and they're leaving the bank because the banks have not passed along the interest rate increase to to their customers uh, the way either they should have or maybe because they can't because they've got too many low yielding loans. But problem number one is, you know, deposits are leaving the bank. Now, that's the raw material. You can't make gasoline without oil. You can't make loans without deposits. All right. So that's problem number one. Problem number two is the cost of the deposits is too high is having a real stressing factor on their margins. Problem number three is that they're not making as many loans as they would have liked to make. Uh, Now, either that's because deposit growth is is decreased or because they're worried about what the Fed is about to do. And uh, problem number four is bad loans are starting to creep back into the system. Uh, You know, we've gone through the longest period in the history of the American banking industry with virtually no bad loans. 
I mean, the, the bad loan numbers are so low as to almost say it's no bad loans, but that's no longer the case. Bad loans are coming back in. So truest is saying, you know, that earnings are not going to be that great, you know, in, in the second quarter. Regions Financial, uh, uh, you know, going a little bit further down on the size size numbers, Regions, Regions Financial agrees with everything that Truist says, but Regions Financial says we've 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 taken care of that already because we've got hedges in place which control you know the cost of the deposits. We're not seeing that many deposits leave because people put money in our bank to handle their day to day needs. You know they're they're definitely seeing an increase in loan losses and they're definitely seeing a slowdown in loans. But they're arguing, yeah, it's it's going to be a tough second quarter for the industry. But by the end of the year you know, we will still hit all of the targets that we mentioned in the beginning of the year. So all of these banks, you know, I don't care who they are, are getting up, talking a story which is not very positive, as opposed to what I just said about Raytheon, <laughs> GE, and uh, yeah. Boeing, two, two different sides of the coin. So the problem is not in the, uh, if you will, manufacturing defense side, you know, that, that portion of manufacturing, the manufacturing, you know, could be said to be in a recession already, but uh, the manufacturing defense side is doing really well. The financial side is feeling real stress and real trouble. Uh, and that's going to show up uh, in a couple of weeks when they start uh, reporting their earnings, which will start roughly around the twelfth of uh, the twelfth of the July. So net net at City, they're reducing headcount. Well, they are. Yes, City is definitely reducing headcount. Goldman Sachs, you know. Uh, the New York Post is, is uh, you know, mentioned to me uh, in, in, in an interview that, that they think that, uh, you know, the CEO at, at Goldman Sachs is in, in, in trouble in terms of maintaining his position, basically because uh, they're, they're bleeding people. I mean, they, 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 I think, have had three different waves of layoffs uh, at, at Goldman Sachs, um, you know. My argument is that it's not his fault. It, you know, he didn't he didn't create uh, the current economic financial situation. So uh, I, I think that the guy is doing the right job. But uh, you know, who, who knows what's going to happen to him? He's he's a very volatile uh, individual, and therefore it may be his personality more than anything else that, that gets him uh, pushed out if he's going to be pushed out. Morgan Stanley. Go ahead. I, I thought the I thought the the argument was that he started Marcus, uh, went into retail banking just as retail banking got became unprofitable. And you look across the aisle and you just mentioned Morgan Stanley. I didn't mean to cut you off right there, but Morgan Stanley transitioned to wealth management has been basically growing its fee-based business as investment banking and trading has gotten more volatile. And so you kind of compare the two CEOs and one picked the right path and the one picked the wrong path is what I thought the conventional argument was against David Solomon. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It is, but I don't agree with the conventional argument. Uh, I, I, I thought that uh, both companies made the same decision. Uh, the, the decision is that, you know, we don't like rebuilding our business every day, right? I mean, Odeon Capital, we have to rebuild our business every day. We don't have uh, large recurring streams of revenue, and that's traditional of in, in the broker-dealer industry. So both of these companies said that, you know, we're going to develop recurring revenue streams. Uh, in the case of uh, Morgan Stanley, James Gorman basically said, look, you know, we're going to go full bore into asset management, wealth management, because that's recurring revenue streams. Uh, so basically, we, we won't have to deal with the fact that uh, we have to go out and kill and eat our, uh, you know, 
if you will, customer every day. I mean, in the case uh, of, of uh, Goldman Sachs, they came to the same conclusion, but their conclusion was we want to do it by building a strong deposit base and we want to make a lot of loans because loans create recurring revenue streams. I think both companies are going to run into the same buzzsaw. You know, it's happened clearly at more uh, at Goldman Sachs first because consumer lending, you know, has has not worked out well for them uh, because to get into the industry, they bought in by making loans in areas perhaps that they shouldn't. But in the case of Morgan Stanley, you know, they're doing the same thing. They're firing people uh, and and they're, they're firing them in the thousands. Um, not not as aggressively as Citigroup, but it's it's not. 800 people either so the the net effect is um that's where the that's where the hole is right now in the u.s economy it's in the financial sector and that hole is is getting greater every time the fed increases interest rates which gets all the way back to the you know beginning in which we said they're gonna which i said i think they'll continue to do it because they think that the worst thing that could happen is higher rates of inflation but it's it's uh, it's tough times in, in the financial industry it's great times in the defense industry so maybe that ultimately is where this break will come with rising interest rates in the uh, financial services stick. By the way, just uh, maybe David Solomon's problem is he should stop DJing. You saw that report. <laughs> yeah, in other words, <laughs> well, he's he, a, he, in, on the side, he likes to spin the discs and it didn't go down too well with some of the top brass. Well, yeah, you're right, but I mean, he has stopped. He's, he's, uh, he's only done one or two uh, gigs, if you will, uh, in the last year. Uh, and he's he's conscious of the fact that uh, the people who run Goldman Sachs do not believe that it creates the the right image for the CEO of the company to be uh, a disc jockey at uh, big events for for, for young people. Uh, he of course thinks that uh, that if you will softens the image of the mm. company and makes it more personable. But again, uh, he would be a great hero if the economy uh, on the financial side was percolating. It's not. So there has to be scapegoats, and, and, and he's going to be one of the scapegoats. Yeah, exactly. Could you see that happening, Dick? Because you seem to hint at it that maybe it's the financial services sector, which now is hurting somewhat versus the other sectors. Could that where we could see a lot of the mayhem on rising interest rates? I think so. I think, uh, you know, although we've got sell recommendations which i won't recommend i won't mention right here uh and, and on a bunch of stocks and they're not doing the sell recommendations are not doing well the uh the, you know because basically the, the bank stocks are going up we've got buy recommendations on fortunately more than we have sell recommendations but in the buy recommendations are doing just fine uh but you know my gut tells me that if we're looking at this thing six months from now, which we will be, uh, that the sell recommendations will do better than the buy recommendations, because I do think that the financial problem is significant. And and that leads to, I'll, I'll bring up this Federal Reserve thing again. Um, Federal Reserve lost $28 billion in the first quarter. The, the bank itself, you know, the Federal Reserve Bank is a bank. It's actually 12 banks, and they have a holding company bank, and they lost $28 billion in the first quarter. That's unheard of. It's never happened before. Uh, they lost $15 billion in the fourth quarter. So if you put the two numbers together, in two quarters, they've lost $42 billion. So you say, okay, where do they get the money from when they lose $42 billion? Well, they got it by borrowing the money from the treasury. Well, who's the treasury? It's the taxpayer. The taxpayers came up with $42 billion, which they gave to the Federal Reserve 
because the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is so dramatically out of whack. And if the Federal Reserve's balance sheet is that far out of whack, think of what banks are. But going back to the Federal Reserve, you know, why, how did they get themselves into this position? Well, back in the pandemic, you know, the United States government, you know, decided to do all of these uh, steps to uh, ameliorate the blow of the pandemic on the economy and on the consumer. And they increased the debt to the highest level we've ever seen, uh, you know, in, in the U.S. economy. Uh, and, and everybody agreed to that. And the Democrats and the Republicans, they both agreed to it. So I'm not making any political statement. So anyway, basically, the, the debt, you know, was created and somebody had to buy the debt. Well, the normal buyers of the debt, which would be the Social Security Fund, foreign uh, governments, there's a th the third one. Individuals, uh, individuals kept buying the debt, but but the Social Security Fund and the foreign uh, government stopped. So that meant that there was this huge amount of debt that was being created that had to be bought by someone, uh, and that was the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve stepped in uh, because they were the buyer of last resort, and they bought, I think, 48% of all of the U.S. debt that was created in 2020. So now they're sitting with all this debt. And with interest rates were, you know, non-existent, we'll say, you know, that wasn't a problem. But now, if you take a look at the uh, what happened in the first quarter for the Federal Reserve, they borrowed, they, I'm sorry, they had to pay $60 billion on the debt that they had put in place to resolve the problem of the United States government because the deficits were so high during the pandemic. They don't have anything that gives them $60 billion in interest income, you know, to offset that interest cost that they had. And that's why they were, they ran into a $28 billion loss for the quarter. And they're going to keep doing that as long as interest rates stay where they are. And they're going to keep doing that if uh, they increase interest rates further. So you have to say to yourself two things. Number one is, why would they keep doing that? And, and the answer is that they're afraid of inflation. The other question you have to say is, why the heck did they borrow the money in the first place? Why didn't they just print it? In other words, they could have printed $2.7 trillion, and instead of sitting here with a deficit, they'd be sitting here with a profit, with a profit, with a growing profit, actually. But they couldn't print the $2.7 trillion because inflation, you know, was too high. And if they printed $2.7 trillion, the money supply grew by 26%, you know, that year. If they printed $2.7 trillion, the money supply might have jumped by as much as 40 or 50%. And inflation, instead of, uh, you know, arguing whether it's 4% or 6.5%, would be arguing whether it's 20% or 30%. So, so the net effect is because they're losing so much money, because they ran their balance sheet in the fashion that they had to, because the deficit forced them to, the U.S. Treasury deficit forced them to do this, you know, they're in trouble. And if they're in trouble, Every bank in the United States is in trouble. And fortunately, the problems in, Europe, in China and Europe right now are bigger than the problems here. And, and I got to stop and, and say that Matt was right last week and I was wrong. The personal disposable income in the United States has risen faster than the uh, CPI. Now, I argued vigorously that that was not the case. He argued that that was the case. He's right. And unfortunately, the good guys are wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies accepted here.
a compliment. It sounds sounds like it's not. I, I gotta say, I mean, you talk about this a lot. The the Fed has no money, and you know, almost in a, a format like the Emperor has no clothes. But none of this is a secret. This isn't like some deep conspiracy theory. I would I would guess that if you went around the world, um, you know, the four or five major central banks, I can't imagine any one of them is sitting on a surplus given. You know, we've had 0% interest rates basically since, you know, 9-11 when uh, I remember what a big deal it was that auto manufacturers were offering 0% financing. And it was like headline news for weeks because it was such an unheard of thing to have 0% interest rates. But you got 20 20 years of, you know, near or zero-ish interest rates where debt has been accumulating on balance sheets. And now you have every central bank in the world has raised interest rates and they're all going to be sitting on deficits. And I guess we talk about this a lot, but I kind of don't think it matters because this whole system is built on confidence. And as much as the accounting might back up the idea that they're broke, that's not how it works in the real world. Because in the real world, people have to have currency to exchange for goods and services. We use the currency of the Federal Reserve System in the United States. And as long as you can go down to the corner market and pay your bills, uh, and as long as your pay, uh, your employer pays your paycheck in dollars, and as long as the only form of currency that's eligible to settle debts, which would be hard to change because most of the contracts, you know, like mortgages are 30-year contracts and they're settled in US dollars, which are issued by the Federal Reserve. The system's just going to keep on going and keep on going because it's the only system that is out there. And whether the, the Fed has a debt or a deficit or is broke or not broke, it doesn't matter. And that's why they have accounting rules to kind of you know, they call it, I think they call it deferred assets on when, when they have losses on quarterly on quarterly adjustments based on um mark not marking to market. And then comparing it to banks that actually have to make money to survive and actually have to attract deposits, you know, that it's just not it, it's an apple and oranges comparison. The reason Silicon Valley went out of business is because they had a run on their bank because people learned that through their phone they could transfer their money to a money market fund that would get 5% and it was better than the 0.02% they were getting from Silicon Valley and Silicon Valley ran out of money and they got seized and that's what happens. But that's not what happens to federal, um, to, to central banks. If they run out of money, they just print more. Well, that's the issue, whether they can or not. And and again, that's, the, you know, going back to what I said about this guy, Ray Dalio, that's his issue. His issue is, um, because what you said is correct, obviously, you know, it's confidence. It's, as long as people have confidence in the dollar, and they do have confidence in the dollar, then the system will continue to function. Uh, Dalio says, however, that once all of the financial entities in the system have overextended themselves, that confidence will break. And that's when, you know, you'll get this major change in the functioning of, of, of the society. A change uh, to what? Well, he thinks a pretty strong depression. So, so people lose confidence in the Fed, and then they they all of a sudden and the Fed and the dollar and the dollar. In other words, what he yeah. In other words, his his argument is that you know uh, if you go back and take a look at each one of these countries that I mentioned and and how long they remained uh, you know supreme you know which it tends to be a hundred to hundred and fifty years uh, that you know basically what ultimately brings them down is that their debt overwhelms them. He doesn't call it a Minsky moment, but, you know, it, it's basically that debt overwhelms them. And, and his argument is that when you go, what you just said, when you go around the world and you see that all these countries have done the same thing and that the uh, amount of debt is so extraordinarily high that you basically, you know, you, you can't be repaid. And if it can't yeah, I mean, be paid, it has to be forgiven. And if it's forgiven, then every country has got to go back and figure out how it's going to generate the income to pay for the growth in the economy if it's not going to come from borrowing. That's the core of what he's saying.
I'm going to pick you up on a note you had out this week, uh, Dick. Uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen indicated the likelihood that the US dollar will no longer be supreme, the only reserve currency in the coming years, not immediately. And she said, uh, gave us a little history here, that the uh, a lot of countries fearful of sanctions were motivated to look for dollar alternatives with the Russia invasion of Ukraine and a lot of global instability. She has acknowledged that, but she does make the, the point that there's really no alternative to the US dollar imminent. It's still a very strong currency. And she, you know, we have the rule of law in the United States, and we have very deep capital markets. I'm not sure if any country out there comes close to financial infrastructure even. Yeah, I, I would I would respond to this, and sorry if I'm cutting off, Dick. I just it, it's it's we're we're talking about something that was established in I believe 1944. We're talking about the Bretton Woods, um, you know the 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 Bretton, they call it the Bretton Woods Conference, I think. And at the time, you know, we we're coming out of World War II. the The British pound was losing its supremacy as as the the standard bearer. I don't know if it was a global reserve currency because everything was kind of a gold based system. And my my recollection from my history books is that John Maynard Keynes was um, represented basically the rest of the world, and the U.S. represented the U.S. And there were two systems that were floated and heavily debated, and one was basically setting up a global central bank. Um, which was Keynes' preference, and the United States wanted the U.S. dollar to be the global central reserve currency, and the U.S. won. And since that time, you know, there have been a lot of forecasts of the U.S. dollar's death, that is, particularly in the 1970s after Nixon left the, you know, closed the gold window, which stopped a run on U.S. gold. I think it was France uh, under de Gaulle repaying yeah. for World War II, who was trying to get as much gold out of America as he could. And it became it became obvious to Nixon's administration that if we continued sending our gold to France, that the system would collapse. And so rather than let the system collapse, we just stopped honoring the gold exchange window and said, you've got U.S. dollars. And in response to that, and also in response to World War II, Europe has been working on you know, creating a, a reserve currency for them, which is the euro, which they successfully implemented in the 1990s. And slowly, it's become the second biggest currency in the world. But my understanding, the reason it's the second largest currency in the world is because of intra-European trade, not because countries are, you know, lining up to use it as the global reserve currency. And then you have all this, you know, tenuous um ideas around well russia and china are now you know trading trading you know goods and services and yuan and 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 rubles and and saudi arabia is now accepting yuan for for oil and and it's it's going to change the dominance but but i'm sorry to to have a to to displace the us dollar you have to actually have trade occur round trip in those currencies you have to be able to go and set up um depository accounts in in china and accept and believe and have faith that your your investments will be worthwhile. If, if Saudi Arabia goes and buys an apartment building in downtown Beijing with the money they get from selling oil, they, they have to have trust that when they charge rent and when they go in and, and do evictions or if they want to have a different policy, that they have have a court system that will respect them. And right now they don't. There's no one that is is trying to get more yuan deposited in yuan accounts in china uh, that, that's ridiculous and there's no one that is is trying to 
um, to immigrate to China. There's no one that's lining up asking for China's security blanket. There's no one that is hoping that China comes in and offers them, you know, what used to be known as a good idea, the, the Belt and Road Initiative, and maybe we'll, you know, ni- nice nice airport you got there, maybe we'll finance it and take it from you. The, the idea that the U.S. dollar is on the way out, I, I get the argument that, you know, we're a dysfunctional country, we seem to have a lot of debt, but we have the U.S. dollar, which is the global reserve currency, because we have, one, a, a giant blue sea navy that goes and protects the world's trade lanes everywhere in the entire planet the the sea, the the trade is defended by the united states navy you go down to singapore you go over to the middle east you go um around the the horn of africa everywhere you go it's us navy that's providing the trade lanes to to secure the united states to secure global tr- free trade I, I could go on and on. I, you know, they talk about they call it the fourth turning, and I agree with you that you know the history has shown that currencies have a certain lifespan, and I think it has played out throughout history. And I know that we're at the end tail end of that. But what is missing from everyone who's calling for the demise or predicting the demise of the U.S. dollar is the global reserve currency. What's missing is a replacement. And second, if every country in the world united and said, "Okay, we're going to replace the dollar." except the US, I guess, you know, so now you got 80% of the GDP. Well, who's leading that effort? And and you look at BRICS, and we talk about BRICS a lot, and it started off as Brazil, um, Russia, India, China, um, you know, and, and now it's slowly becoming a, a monetary body. Well, I'm sorry, they're only they're only lining up because they have a common big gorilla on the planet, the United States, and they're you know, they're not natural allies. There's nothing about them, you know, socially, economically, geographically that that is aligned on a permanent basis. The only thing that aligns them is that they're anti-U.S. dollar. So I I just feel like a lot of the stuff that we talk about, I agree everything you say is right, but there's no credible alternative. I'm just going to really quickly interject here before you come in here, Dick. Um, you, you know, of course, that China and the BRICS launched the New Development Bank about eight or nine years ago. That's run into trouble and has effectively stopped making loans. And there was a, a PR disaster with the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank recently uh, when one of its executives uh, left, said it was dominated by the China Communist Party. And then there's been trouble, apparently, with the Belt and Road Initiative push and um, all to make the point that this um, idea that the dollar will stumble um it's not a cakewalk. It's not just going to happen that easily. Well, I think that, um, you know, it's it's absolutely correct that the U.S. dollar is still the primary currency in the world, but it is not used in transactions uh, to the same degree uh, that it was, you know, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. In other words, other currencies are now being used freely uh, in transactions, you know, with trade uh, and, and, and payments of uh, debt, you know, uh, much more so than at any time in the last 100 years. So while it was, you know, I think you came up with the number, John, uh, you know, it was uh, something 60. like 80%, 60? Around 60%. Yeah, yeah 60%. So that uh, even though it, it was um, and still is the dominant currency, its its position as a dominant currency is nowhere near what it 
what it was in the past. And, you know, the fact that, um, you know, the Chinese and the Russians um, who do use one between them, uh, between each other, uh, as do the Iranians and the North Koreans, and, and to some degree, the uh, South Africans, uh, to a lesser degree, the Brazilians. But the point is that they keep trying. Uh, they keep trying to set up a, a financial system that will be equal to, uh, in strength, uh, to the dollar financial system. Uh, and they're not going to quit. They're not going to stop trying. Uh, so, so I think given the fact that they have uh, more people than we do by a significant amount, that their uh, trade surplus in the case of China is, is significantly greater than our trade surplus, which is a huge, massive deficit. If, if again, you take a look at history, um, all of the parameters of history would argue that the United States is in trouble here and that the uh, Chinese are, are you know, have have a, a pretty good hand to play, but you know, it's you know, is is I don't even know why Janet Yellen brought it up. You know, last week, but as she says, you know, the dollar is in the primary primacy at the moment, but she's saying that she doesn't believe that it will have that, if you will, lonely spot at the top. Uh, that there will be other, uh, there will be another, uh, if you will, financial system that we're going to compete with. Uh, but it, you know Matt's right; it, it's not in position yet. And you're right, John, uh, that you know all of these initiatives to set up their own World Bank, their own uh, IMF, are, are failing. They're just not working. Uh, so they're not going to stop trying. Um, and, and until the United States turns this trade situation around to where we start to to get a, a positive flow instead of a consistent negative flow, you know we're helping them. We're not hurting them. And just for clarity, the, um, some stat here, the US dollar accounted for just over 60% of the 10.9 trillion in allocated foreign exchange reserves in the first quarter of 2019. That's relatively recent, but not the latest numbers. And that's data from the IMF. I also want to say, I just researched because Dick said that, you know, the US dollar usage is the lowest it's been, I think he said 120, 10 five years just on on the federal reserve website um he's right over the the 30 year period about in, on the year 2000 the us dollar accounted for 75 percent of global trade and it and that was the peak and but it bottomed out in 2008 at around 65 percent and they say for 2022 the number was 69 percent so it's been between 65 and 75 percent according to the this chart going back to the 1950s and we're basically in the midpoint right now the euro peaked um in 2008 I guess, you know, maybe that had to do with the, the housing crisis in the United States, but th there's not a cliff here and there's not a Minsky moment. And I, I think what you're saying is there will be a great, you know, and, and maybe what Ray Dalio is saying is there will be a moment where it just starts to decline and, and the decline is irreversible and maybe we're there, but it just doesn't, it, it, I feel like there has to be a credible alternative and it doesn't seem like BRICS is it and one-off transactions between Saudi Arabia and China for, you know, shipment of oil here and there isn't changing that oil is largely priced and still is priced in dollars. And when you look at the details of a lot of these contracts that are famously priced in one, they still reference the US dollar point price and then fix the, the exchange rate. So as long as you're fixing to the US dollar, it still is the anchor currency for the world. Yeah, it definitely is at the present time. There's no question about that. Um, but um, I think both of you are using trade statistics uh, to, to determine how much the usage of the currency is. And I think if you broaden that out to all transactions, you'll see, and uh, we'll do that next week, you'll see that it's a much different number. And then I would also say that <coughs> if you go Excuse back, 
prior to the euro estab- being established, the big loser there was, you know, the British pound, which accounted was the common um, currency for Europe to exchange into if they wanted to face with a with a somewhat national currency to the rest of the world. The pound has gotten um, creamed as the euro, you know, took over the continent, and and most of that trade is still intra-European trade. You don't see a lot of commodities or global products priced in anything but U.S. dollars. Maybe one of the biggest threats are the threats indirectly to the dollar is threats to American democracy, the polarization in American society. We saw that a couple of years ago with riots on the streets, people trying to tear down the um, legal system, the political system, the economic system. I mean, it's just extraordinary. And we see that in the present election cycle. Some people are just trying to tear down the very foundations of our nation. Yeah. I, I think I, I'm not so sure that, you know, the riots in the streets and stuff are, are indicative of a declining United States. I think where, where we should really be nervous as a country is looking at the Smith, the mismanagement of states like California, Illinois, New York, where you have pension debts that are mathematically almost impossible to honor. They're supposedly constitutionally enshrined in these states constitutions. And the only way these states are going to make it is getting handouts from the feds. And I think states like Florida and Texas and Utah and Colorado that are fairly well managed are going to object heavily to the feds bailing out the pensioners of these mismanaged states. And I think that's going to be the dividing line that could actually have significant impact. No, I I think what both of you are saying uh, about the dollar being the primary currency in the world is is definitely true at the current time. I still think, however, that uh, history argues that any country which has the biggest debt in the world, the biggest trade deficit in the world, uh, is is not going to continue to be uh, the country that has the uh, global reserve currency. No evidence in history that would suggest that that can continue. I totally agree with that. The problem is, is there's no viable alternative out there. And the other point I would make is every historical example we have there's been a limit on the supply of the currency they use. Even in the 1930s Germany, it was you know gold. Um, Roman Empire was also gold and and other types of commodity type products. We've never had a uh, we don't have an example in history with a fiat global reserve currency. The amazing thing about Germany, that horrible episode in in, in world history, is it, it ultimately recovered from the shocking tragedy of the Second World War and became a powerhouse. Yeah, we're not we're not advocating for war here. <laughs> we'll come back to that. We're almost we're out of time, Dick and Matt, and uh, we've more we can look at next week. We'll come back to the dollar. We'll come back to inflation. We'll come back to the Fed's next possible move. And until then, until episode seventy-five, take care. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions, and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views.
These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.